0: I was on a Zoom call in May when I first realized how quickly the world is changing. I was hoping for a quiet day, getting up to speed in my new job covering energy and climate for The Economist. I joined shareholders of ExxonMobil who had gathered online for their annual meeting. When I'd previously been on the energy beat two decades ago, Exxon was the most powerful company on the planet. Back then, these gatherings were successfully stage managed. This time, there was trouble for the Texas oil men. A scrappy hedge fund wanted climate-friendly directors on the board. The meeting erupted in chaos. Shareholders tired of Exxon's financial blunders and stubborn defense of oil backed the climate dissidents. The company declared a recess while it scrambled to secure more votes. For an hour, we all stared at a blank screen and listened to Muzak. When the meeting resumed, The unthinkable happened. Exxon lost. Three dissident board members were elected. They're now busy pushing the fossil fuel giant in a greener direction. It was a watershed moment for American capitalism. One that made me believe that it was really possible for the world to deal with climate change. I'm Vijay Warren, Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist, and I'm the host of To a Lesser Degree. In this series, we'll take a clear-eyed look at the fight against extreme climate change. World leaders gather in November in Glasgow, Scotland, for a United Nations climate conference known as COP26. The goal is to agree on a concrete set of actions to slow the warming of the earth. It's the most significant meeting since the 2015 Paris Summit, when nearly 200 countries agreed to keep the Earth's temperature well below 2 degrees over pre-industrial levels, and preferably no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. It has already gone up by 1.2 degrees. And if dramatic action isn't taken, that increase could go as high as 3 degrees, which would wreak havoc on critical Earth systems upon which humanity relies. But it's not too late to avert climate disaster. The question is, how? Over this series, we'll hear from our global reporting team and from the best outside experts to get The Economist's unique take on the world's most important problem. And in this week's episode of To a Lesser Degree, we'll map out the path to tackling climate change. We'll lay out the three things that need to happen First, reducing and removing greenhouse gas emissions from the atmosphere. Second, the ways people will have to adapt to climate change. And third, how to get the politics right in the run-up to the Glasgow Conference and beyond. We'll also take a deeper dive on how to decarbonize the world. We'll go to South Africa to ask how a country can shift away from coal. And we'll ask if existing technology is enough to reduce global warming, or whether more innovation is necessary. Joining me in this journey are Katrine Braheek.
1: Hi, Vijay. For our listeners, I'm the Environment Editor here at
2: The Economist. And Oliver Morton. Hi, I'm the Essays and Briefings Editor at The Economist, and I write about stuff that happens to and on planets.
1: We're going to be looking at three big topics. The first is, what do you do to cut the emissions that we know are warming the planet. The second addresses the fact that no matter what, we will see more warming in decades to come. And so we need to learn how to adapt to the consequences of that warming. And the final question, particularly leading into the Glasgow COP the UN Climate Summit. And that's the politics. This is a problem that by definition needs to be solved at a global level. That comes with enormous challenges. How do we get everybody on board pulling in the same direction?
0: Let's break those down a bit further, starting with emissions reductions. Obviously, it isn't happening quickly enough, or we wouldn't be sitting in these far-flung rooms making this podcast. How's it been going?
2: Well, Vijay, two ways to look at that. One is in terms of human history. And in terms of human history, we're seeing a very quick uptake of renewable technologies, partly because of a huge price fall in renewable technologies. And that makes everyone feel great, except people who don't like seeing wind turbines in places. However, you also have to look at things from the planetary point of view. And from the planetary point of view, the increase in renewables is mainly just making up for growth in energy use, not actually reducing fossil fuel energy use. So fossil fuel emissions are just as high as they ever were. They are still the same proportion, roughly speaking, of global energy demand as they have ever been.
1: Science tells us that In order to have a 50-50 chance of hitting the 1.5 degrees target of the Paris Agreement, emissions globally need to come down by 45% relative to where they were in 2010. The latest assessment of the political pledges that we have on the table set us on track for emissions to rise by 16% by 2030.
0: So we're still going in the wrong direction.
1: Absolutely in the wrong direction.
0: No The Economist has argued fairly recently on our cover that the world could end up in a three-degree world instead of this more desirable world of 1.5 degrees. What would such a world look like at three degrees?
1: We do have some indications from climate models, and the short answer is it's a world that is completely different to the world that we live in today. Beyond two degrees of warming, the West Antarctic ice sheet breaks down in ways that will, in the long term, cause sea levels to rise globally by 1.6 meters. So think of the consequences for all the megacities and the sprawling delta populations all around the world. Coral reefs will disappear entirely. The Amazon potentially could die back as well. It's a completely different world
2: there are quite strong possibilities at three degrees of warming of significant areas of the tropics simply being too hot for extended outdoor work if you can't actually go out of doors quite a lot of the time in parts of the tropics. It's an extraordinary change
1: yeah, I mean it's quite remarkable to start to talk about parts of the planet being fundamentally unlivable for humans
0: since we don't believe that the future is inevitable or locked in place. What can be done to get those emissions down? We know we need to increase the use of renewable energy to lower greenhouse gas emissions dramatically, which we'll discuss later in the show. But what else needs to happen?
1: So another step that's really essential is that we need to start removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And that can involve vast programs for planting huge numbers of trees or, and actually it's probably a a combination of these things, build an enormous brand new industry to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and shove it underground. So this is known as direct air capture.
2: And a fascinating thing about direct air capture, don't think that this is being technology led. This is being policy failure led. It used to be that people could imagine holding below 1.5 degrees simply by cutting emissions. That's no longer viable in any of the models that people look at. And so policymakers and policy analysts invented the idea of negative emissions so that they could still talk about the same climate goals, the same temperature goals.
0: So let's talk about some other ways we have to get emissions down. On the podcast, we're going to be looking at things like incentivizing behavior change. What can individuals do that can make a big difference?
2: It's a really vexed question. There are definitely things you can do to reduce your quotes, carbon footprint. Have you have to remember that the idea of a carbon footprint was introduced by oil companies who wanted to make people feel individually responsible rather than to push for systems change, which is what the world actually needs.
0: Well, I, for one, have halted all my Bitcoin mining in an effort to save the planet. Well and, done, And Reggie. we thank you, Vijay. <laughs> so everything we've discussed up until now has been about lowering greenhouse gas emissions. But what about the second category, Adaptation. <laughs>
1: Adaptation is an essential part of the climate response. It involves looking ahead and running models and understanding exactly what impacts need to be prepared for. And then it's things like infrastructure, adapting electricity grids to warmer temperatures, building seawalls, and then adapting food and agriculture. So all of this is an enormous toolkit that just comes under the umbrella of adaptation, but is actually that term hides a huge amount of variety. One thing that's also not often said about adaptation is that there are actually limits to adaptation.
2: Yes, adaptation is absolutely going to be necessary. Adaptation is necessary. The world is not actually very well adapted to its current climate. It's not even that well adapted to its recently passed climate, as you can see in the northeastern United States.
0: That just leaves our third topic, politics. What's it going to take to get that right? especially in the run-up to the COP summit. Will the conference make a difference?
1: Politics are the essential oil that gets this whole machine going. You can't address the global climate challenge unless you have a global climate solution, or at least a global climate form. There's a lot of discussion as to what the usefulness of these big UN climate summits are, right? They take a long time. It's a very slow process. You have nearly 200 governments trying to agree on a consensus, which is practically impossible. The summits do actually serve a purpose. They increase the pressure on governments to do something.
2: But it only requires something a bit new, something a bit different from what's been done so far. I think, to some extent, Paris took the process that uh, that led up to Paris to its sort of accumulation. Now you need something more than that.
1: COP is a very important milestone, but it is not the end of the game. A number of things are needed. We need more countries to submit. Bigger, ambitious climate plans ahead of Glasgow. That includes China. They haven't actually yet submitted their formal climate pledges to the United Nations, but did just last week announce a pretty significant move. At the UN General Assembly in New York, Xi Jinping announced that China would stop financing new coal-fired power plants outside its borders. And that, that's important, right? Because China is the world's largest financier of foreign coal.
0: Thanks to you both. That was a great roundup of the topics we're gonna to be covering in upcoming episodes of To a Lesser Degree. I look forward to going on the journey with you. In the next part of the show, we'll look at decarbonization. We'll go to South Africa where the transition away from coal is impacting people's lives and livelihoods. But before then, I should mention that now is a great time to subscribe to The Economist. You can read about what a world of three degree warming would look like, examine the bottlenecks that are bunging up the clean energy revolution, and learn about the role that hydrogen will play in deep decarbonization. Our latest offer is at economist.com forward slash climate pod, the link is in the show notes. Countries from Pakistan to the Philippines have needed cheap electricity as their economies have grown. Much of it has been provided by coal. Existing coal power is cheap and readily available, but it is heavily polluting. To meet the targets of the Paris Agreement, developing countries are now being asked to rein in their use of coal. The fuel that powered industrialization in the rich world. But a rapid energy transition isn't something they can easily afford, and it has a real impact on people's livelihoods in the short term. How the rich world should help the developing world pay for it will be a source of contention at COP26. John McDermott, the economist's chief Africa correspondent, is reporting from Johannesburg.
3: South Africa, like all African countries, is going to be hit hard by climate change. But despite protests for climate action like this one, the path to reducing emissions is tougher than in rich countries. Here in South Africa, coal is big business. During White Rule, South Africa had huge energy capacity. The apartheid regime built lots of massive coal-fired power stations all under the auspices of ESCOM. South
0: Africa's power utility, ESCOM.
3: The company was and is the Soviet style behemoth that doesn't just generate electricity, but transmits it and distributes it as well. ESCOM operates close to 400,000 kilometers of these lines. The point of it for the apartheid government was to build up industry and, frankly, to provide jobs for white working class people. After the election of Nelson Mandela in 1994, the ruling African National Congress did what the apartheid government didn't do, which was provide widespread electricity to black people in the townships. The problem was, while you had all these new people coming onto the grid, the ANC government didn't build up capacity. So by 2008, ESCOM started introducing rolling blackouts for the first time. That's ESCOM, powering your world. It was a problem that badly needed fixing, and the ANC's response to blackouts was to double down on coal-fired power stations.
4: One of the huge challenges in South Africa is that about 10 years ago, we made a decision to build two large coal-fired power plants right at the time that renewable energy was becoming the most competitive option.
3: Jesse Burton is a researcher at the University of Cape Town and the climate think tank E3G.
4: So we've locked ourselves into these two big, very expensive mega plants at a time where the future is largely renewable for the country. At the moment, South Africa has said that they're working towards a net zero by 2050 goal. So plants that are still under construction today are going to have to be stranded. And that
3: is very costly. And you can't really talk about the energy situation in South Africa without talking about corruption. Under Jacob Zuma, South Africa's previous president, Corruption was spectacular. It was huge. And ESCOM was the golden goose that they repeatedly plucked. They also ditched what had been this world-leading renewable energy auction system, which was bringing solar and wind power onto the grid. South Africa
4: is one of the first developing countries to run auctions for renewable energy. We ran a world-class program for several years, which has been followed by other countries subsequently.
3: The tragedy of all this is that South Africa should be a renewable energy giant. It has an abundance of sunshine and a windswept coastline. Instead, it's still dominated by coal-fired power. Today, renewable power is actually cheaper than new coal. But just at the time when South Africa should be massively expanding renewables, it can't because it lost a decade under Jacob Zuma. Now, to reduce emissions, the country wants to pick up where it left off. But even though renewables are cheaper now than they were before, ESCOM's business model is increasingly just not fit for purpose.
4: ESCOM are highly indebted. They've accrued 30 billion US dollars worth of debt, and we've also reached the point where the state is periodically bailing them out.
3: So, how can the country move away from coal? The transition to renewable energy is going to be extremely difficult for South Africa. Escom is effectively bankrupt and the politics of reforming it are fiendishly difficult. But things could change either if there's renewed political will to reform the state-owned enterprise, or if the financial pressures become simply too much for the status quo to bear.
5: What we have done is looked at the new technologies that we would like to put on site, that we'd like to build in the next five years, and that is about 10 billion US dollars.
3: Mandy Rambaros manages ESCOM's Just Energy Transition office.
5: The Just Energy Transition is a plan that ESCOM has put in place to deal with uh, moving towards a lower carbon climate resilient economy, but at the same time ensuring that we increase sustainable jobs and do not impede socio-economic development.
3: The social aspect of the transition from coal to cleaner energy has to be managed very carefully in South Africa. In provinces like Mpumalanga, There are towns where most people are working in coal mining or in some industry related to mining. I drive through Mpumalanga quite a lot. It's only two hours from Johannesburg. Its landscape is pockmarked with coal mines. And then you can see some of the large coal fired power stations as well. And if jobs were to go in what is effectively the West Virginia of South Africa, that would have social but also potentially political consequences. Liruwani Mamburu is from the National Union of Mine Workers.
2: The National Union of Mine Workers is not against renewable energy. ESCOM must be in the center stage and have its own renewable energy. Our interest is to save jobs. We don't want to see job losses. We need an energy transition model that promotes industrialization, decent green jobs and the interests of workers and communities.
3: In a country where nearly half of Black adults are unemployed, a renewable energy transition that killed these steady jobs would intensify massive social problems.
5: As we're shutting down our coal plants, we're working on what we're calling a repowering and repurposing program. We will be building renewable plants to repower and repurpose those sites.
3: Mandy Rambaros of ESCOM again.
5: We can transition our staff as well, to reskill, retrain staff to operate these new plants, to uh, understand what it's like to operate a renewables plant. And then also to, to the be, uh, added benefit is the use of the existing transmission infrastructure. I don't want to sound like I have rose colored glasses on. You know, you won't be able to employ everybody along that value chain, but there are opportunities that are being created in that respect.
3: So moving South Africa away from coal is plagued by difficulties of corruption, monopolization, and social strife. As the energy researcher Jesse Burton points out, one big problem remains.
4: Ultimately, the costs of transition are too great to be borne by individual developing countries. And developed countries are going to have to contribute to this process. Um, It may look different depending on the country that you're in and and the precise needs. Um, In our case, we have a very indebted utility. And and, and so that, that comes with its own flavor of needs. This can't be achieved without the necessary financial flows from developed to developing countries.
0: But it will take more than developing countries moving away from coal to reduce global emissions enough to deal with climate change. All aspects of modern economies, from food production to transportation to industrial processes, will need to be decarbonized. Does the technology already exist to do this at scale, or will innovation be required to overcome the climate crisis? We'll be back in a minute to find out. Renewable energy is an important part of the energy transition that needs to happen to get countries off of coal. But even if coal mines are shut down the world over, that wouldn't be enough to overcome the climate crisis. So how much good can renewables really do?
1: Renewables can do a lot of good. Right now, they generate roughly a quarter of the global electricity supply that is going to rise. I've seen some estimates that by mid-century, it could be on the order of 45 to 50%.
0: What will it take to get renewables running at the scale necessary to fight climate change?
2: Two obvious answers, Vijay. One is make burning fossil fuels much more expensive. Also, create electrical grids that can really use renewables in the best way possible. And this is absolutely crucial because without grids that are considerably greater in capacity and smarter than the grids we have today, you can't electrify all the other things you need to electrify to get the most out of renewable energy. So you need grids that can change demand functions as well as supply functions. You need grids that can move electricity a great distance from A to B. You need grids that are able to store energy over various different periods of time. Those are big challenges, but those are the challenges you need to make renewables absolutely do as much as they can in order to power the energy transition.
0: Ollie, this robust, intelligent grid of the future, it sounds fantastic, but isn't the problem that it's much more glamorous to invest in renewable energy than it is in the boring transmission grid? And when you talk about investing in the grid, you have NIMBY problems and regulatory hassles and local council objections, that this is actually really fiddly and hard to do. Congratulations, Vijay. You've spotted the fifth of the
2: huge hurdles in our series <laughs> of huge hurdles, which we will be unrolling throughout this podcast. Yeah, it's really hard to get that happening. That said, solar panels aren't really that glamorous either. So uh, I don't
1: oh, know. I Grids are nowhere near as exciting as solar panels and wind turbines.
2: Oh, I think you're misunderstanding it. Grids are great. For you,
1: grids are great. Grids are
2: great. Whereas, you know, I mean, the thing that's great about a solar panel is also what's incredibly dull about a solar panel. It just sits there generating electricity, which is wow, but also, yeah.
1: But there's a wider point here, right? The solar panel and the wind turbine are visible, whereas the grid is invisible. So most people don't necessarily appreciate the importance of the grid because they just can't see it.
0: And the other point is that we need to find ways of providing incentives for companies to make money investing in the grid. And it's going to take a revolution in regulation as well as a revolution in technology. Oli, let's move on to the next obstacle that's impossible to fix areas that are hard to decarbonize, places that electricity can't reach. What do you say to that? Well, I say you're winding me up,
2: Vijay, because if we all (laughs) thought that this was impossible to fix, we'd not be spending our time doing this podcast. We just think it's really, really difficult to fix. And yeah, there are a whole bunch of areas where fossil fuels are used for various reasons where it will be very hard to replace them. And people are looking at ways to do all this, to change bulk carriers over to using ammonia as a fuel, looking at hydrogen powered aircraft, all these things, they will all be difficult. Some of them will be done faster than others.
1: There are sectors that are much more of a challenge where we don't currently have the technological solutions. And examples of these would be cement production and steel production. CO2 emissions are a sort of inherent part of the chemical processes that result in cement and steel. So they're much harder
0: to eliminate. Now, John Kerry, America's special presidential envoy for climate, stirred up a controversy recently by saying that new inventions, and not just the scaling up of existing technologies like wind and solar, are necessary to tackle climate change. So, is innovation necessary, or is it a risky distraction?
1: Innovation is 100% necessary, but it is not everything. And you also need to do the really boring stuff. And that includes things like Ollie's grids. Um, It also includes things like, you know, my favorite one is always insulation and energy efficiency. There's nothing more dull than coming up with ways to use less energy. And yet that is absolutely part of the equation.
2: I mean, it can be a risky distraction in some ways. Technology development has to be a broad portfolio. And there are lots of technologies that qualify as nice to have and some that are going to prove absolutely necessary. You're not going to get everything in your portfolio paying off. The biggest problem for me with things such as that, which Secretary Kerry said, is that it gives people the impression that you don't act yet. You wait for the technology. The idea is to develop the new technologies at the same time as you are deploying the existing technologies. And sometimes that will not, in the end, turn out to have been the most efficient way to go. So privileging innovation over doing the stuff you know how to do, that for me is the risk. Saying that you don't need innovation is
0: just daft. But is there an argument for waiting to implement future innovations, which will surely be better than today's technologies, particularly in the hard to abate sectors that you've outlined?
1: Yes, you need to make room for innovation. But the time schedules that we are on right now mean that you can't just wait for innovation. You also need to incentivize that innovation.
0: And then, of course, it's not just incentivizing behavior, but figuring out how to pay for such a massive energy transition.
1: Absolutely. And here at the economists were obviously big proponents of having a carbon price, but for a lot of these innovations, there's upfront costs that are going to require government intervention. So for instance, I recently went to Iceland where I saw the world's largest carbon capture plant rev up its engines for the first time. And it's an impressive piece of innovation. We're going to need a lot more of it in future. But if you speak to the people who are building them and running them, they are categorical that just on the funds and the private investment that they're receiving now, they can get so far, but they can't boost that sector to the point where it's climate relevant without some kind of government support. So yes, definitely count on innovation, getting us out of at least part of this problem, but make sure that We need to incentivize the steps that get us there. That's really important.
0: And we'll hear more about your trip to Iceland in a future episode. In a series about climate change, it's all too easy to leave our listeners feeling despondent. It's a big issue, and the news can be overwhelmingly negative. So to end each episode, we're going to challenge each other to discuss something positive about climate change. It could be a bit of good news that we've heard or perhaps something we're doing in our personal lives that could be helpful to the climate. Kat, do you want to kick us off?
1: Sure, Vijay. Look, this is really scraping the bottom of the barrel here. But if I'm thinking about imperceptible ways in which my environmental footprint might have changed recently, my partner decided to switch our milk supply from dairy to oat milk. And it's better for the planet. But if, Why
2: is it better for the planet?
1: Well, milk, dairy is generally quite yeah, bad. And,
2: and how many dairies is Will put out of business? Oh, we're going to we go there, can are we? Start
1: talking about personal action. <laughs> Genuinely, though, if it's a world of 8 billion people, uh-huh. and don't you need to get all of those billions of people doing stuff in order to have action on climate change?
0: Uh, well, we could go down a different tack. It occurs to me that having more than a billion people on Earth that do not eat beef on religious grounds could be seen as a pro climate stance.
1: Yeah, I think there's no question that if that billion were to eat beef instead of not eating beef, then yes, it would have a huge impact. But that's, you know, to get to the billion, you need the one plus one plus one plus one.
0: To hear more about how personal lifestyle decisions will or won't make a difference with climate change, listen to the second episode of To a Lesser Degree, which will be out next Monday. To a Lesser Degree was edited by Marguerite Howell. And produced by Rory Galloway and Hannah Marino. The executive producer was John Shields and the sound engineer was Evan Viola. I'm your host Vijay Vaithiswaran and I'll be back next week to put the most important and challenging ideas and people in the world of climate change in the hot seat. See you then.